Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. July the 1st marks 25 years since the handover of Hong Kong and the foundation of the Hong Kong SAR. Just prior to that event, RTHK's Radio 3 tasked producer Lucy Matthews with producing what turned into a wonderful series called Rock of Fortune, Memories of Hong Kong. I'll be playing a few extracts from that in the coming weeks. Among her talkers were Harry Harry Layla, Dr Stanley Ho, Sir Kenneth Fung, Gloria Barreto, Arthur Gomez, and her series took the listener on a nostalgic aural tour of pre-war Hong Kong, where the pace was far slower, the population far smaller, and there was a big gap between the British elite and the rest of those living in Hong Kong. Rock of Fortune takes us through the Second World War and after and shows the mix of Chinese, Portuguese, South Asian and Europeans, among others, that have made up the fabric of what was a British colony from 1841 to 1997. The following extract is from an episode called Fishermen, Merchants and Traders, harking back to an earlier era. Rock of Fortune, Memories of Hong Kong. The importance of uh, Hong Kong is that this is one of the very few natural deep water harbors in the entire China coast. And I think that's what gave Hong Kong its greatness. Um, you can imagine the founding fathers, so to speak, to have the vision to show that, in fact, in the historical writings, some of them said, someday Hong Kong will be an important world shipping center. Just think of this statement being made back in the 1800s, uh, what their foresight was to what Hong Kong was. The harbor was not as congested as it is now, but there were always big ships anchored in the harbor. With the junks. In the evening, they would return to Hong Kong and anchor within the typhoon shelters. And in the morning, they would go out again and come back. There were sampans, of course, running between ships and so on. Programme 4. Fishermen, Merchants and Traders. The harbour was always busy. There were always um, many ships in, in, in the harbour at the buoys and at the Kowloon Wharf and go-downs. And, and naval anchorage was the British Pacific um, Far East Fleet. The ships used to come in to Kowloon Docks and the sailors used to play football with us. In 36, 37, there was HMS Medway, a mothership with a whole brood of submarines. And the submarines used to come to dock to have the rivets removed and welded so that oil would not leak uh, to trace the enemy. Then there was the aircraft carrier Hermes. Then there were the county cross cruisers, HMS Kent, HMS Barrick, HMS Gloucestershire. The fleet used to go up to Tianjin, way high way. It was the British Pacific Fleet's uh, summer base. The whole fleet went up north. The aircraft carrier, counter-class cruisers. There were oh, there lots of destroyers. There was Dorsetshire, and that was a counter-class cr cruiser. Living in Kowloon-Dongs, I saw a lot of ships. They all came for repairs there. And we had three um, graving docks and three slipways. In the Yamati shelter, there were hundreds of junks. They were all clustered together there in, in Yamati. And also in Aberdeen. The, 
you know, the fisher folk, they're, they, they, they're based there. They live in those boats. Castlepeak Bay was full of sailing junks, great big sailing junks, uh, with um, rounded sterns, very huge rounded sterns, uh, very high, beautiful, beautiful boats. And these used to, to sail across the, the estuary there of the Pearl River, uh, fishing and shrimping. And ships would sail uh, through Hong Kong waters up and down the coast of China. And even in Yunlong itself, occasionally coming up the Yunlong River into the center of the town, there was a wharf in Yunlong, in, more or less in the middle of the town. And the sailing junks would come up the, up the river in Yunnan and unload bricks and cement from China. Very big junks, enormous, beautiful junks. They move quite fast, too. With a good wind, they move very fast indeed. The Wongfar fleet was about probably um, up to a hundred huge junks under sail. And they used to come down to the yellow flower fish. And I used to love the Wong Far fleet and what, you know, they were all manned by men primarily and families. And, uh, but they were wonderful people, these people catching the yellow flower. Yellow flower fish used to come down every now and again into the estuary of the river. But they would catch these fish and then sell them. They would be dried. That's what made up the salt fish that was very popular throughout the whole of China. As they moved around the different places, of course, one thing they used to like to do was engage in gambling and the other things that go with uh, the other odd vices, gambling, prostitution, opium smoking, and all that existed. And we carried out raids and arrested different people from time to time. But it came from China. Hmm? But they used to land up in Tai-O. That was one of their locations for stopping. Sometimes they stopped in Pingchao, places like that. I was moved to Lantau Island, Tai-O Police Station. I arrived out there on an old tugboat that was police number one in those days. It, was, it could go into the high seas. Having arrived there, I had my own quarters, quite beautiful quarters, but um, just one thing, there was no flushing thing, no toilets or anything, like the old days. And in town, in fact, there was no electricity. Anyway, my job was to patrol the island from end to end. And patrolling the island meant using your feet because there were no roads and no vehicles. What I did have was a 70-foot launch. And that I could take out to point A and then drop me off and I'd walk back. Or I'd walk to point A and then the uh, launch would pick me up there and bring me back. But I enjoyed every moment of it. I had a team of eight. Um, all marine police, and we just strolled through the villages and the monasteries and whatever. We were spoiled everywhere we went, sort of. People would give you a cup of tea or a bowl of rice and some vegetables, things like that. But it was very nice. I used to relax laying in the stream, just take off my clothes and laying in the stream with the water running over me. There was no sacred reservoir. That was two villages. And that was beautiful green land because you were fed from the water from the hills around it. But then I would say go on to a monastery and the monastery would give us some jai, which is the vegetable they make up, and some rice or noodles. 
tea. Oh, the villagers were superb. They were real Chinese villagers. They didn't have much, but they would certainly share what little they had with us. You know, even if they just gave you a glass of warm water, appreciated it. Well, they're just the salt of the earth, aren't they? The salt of the sea. Hard-working, rarely dishonest, because there's nothing to be dishonest about. But in those days, the villagers all had... In each village, there were four rifles. Lee Enfield, the old 303. And that was dating back to the old days when the um, villages used to be robbed by people. So they were allowed to have four Lee Enfield rifles. And my job was to see that they were kept clean and give a few minutes of instruction so people allowed to carry them. In early 1945, some of our aircraft went, they were equipped with uh, torpedoes to attack uh, the, a, a lair of pirates up the coast. I think most of the coastal vessels had Russian, a Russian guard, yes, as it was called, with his firearms and the gangways up from the steerage passengers and crew had great metal barriers so that uh, if there were pirates in the passenger intake, they couldn't get up and take the bridge. At that time, Shanghai was uh, really the center of everything, and Hong Kong was a little backwater. And its main job was to transship cargo that come in on ocean-going ships to small lighters or small uh, coastal freighters to up the China coast. And um, everybody was, uh, Shanghai's this and Shanghai's that. And uh, we were just um, a little, sort of a provincial city, so to speak. My father was in China in 1922 in Shanghai, and then later on he came to Canton. He had his own business, very lucrative, exporting uh, jade, curios, uh, and uh, Chinese embroidery and so on and so forth to the United States. And uh, so when my father came to Hong Kong, into the office, there were only three people working there. And he asked about his brother, nowhere to be found. He closed the bank account, he ripped out the money. So my father, when, you know, came from Canton to Hong Kong, he thought at least he will have a little comfortable life. But when he came to Hong Kong, he found nothing. And that's how our poverty started. We went from a very wealthy family to the great poverty. He couldn't afford $3 a month to send us to school. So what we used to do, sell newspapers, whatever we can get our hands on. So finally we decided to, instead of standing in the streets and selling things, we decided to do something more adventurous by hawking in the British Army in Shamshipu area. But we were not allowed to go into the army. So we used to sit outside the barracks. There was a gate and we used to sit outside. We used to carry heavy suitcases and open and uh, the soldiers used to come. Uh, and uh, wanted to buy things that was cheaper outside. Uh, that's how we started. And then gradually, they feel very sorry for us because it, it was hot and uh, we have nothing to eat the whole day, you know. So they asked us to come in, in the barracks. So that was part of the programme produced by Lucy Matthews called Fishermen, Merchants and Traders. So that's from Rock of Fortune, Memories of Hong Kong. And it included the voices of David Akers-Jones, David Rhodes, Arthur Gomez, Harry Harry Layla, Mrs Yvonne Charter and Frank Knight. 
Arthur Gomez. I would often chat with him and meet him for nice lunches at Club Lusitano. In a programme about his childhood, he described once to me running a hoop with a stick all the way down the seafront at Hung Hum and the Scottish who worked in the shipbuilding yards. A few weeks ago, I broadcast a few minutes of my father, Brian Evans, talking about the hop pickers in the area where he grew up in the middle of England in the late 1930s and 40s. Hops are usually used to brew beer. This was in a bid to get you to also record your relatives and their memories of life from past decades. Here, I return to my chat with Brian Evans about his home village of Menith Wood in the countryside in Worcestershire, where there were no streetlights, the houses didn't have electricity, the toilet was out in the garden, and where his widowed mother ran the village shop. My father still doesn't like the dark, a legacy of when he used to go off to do the bread round, so deliver bread and other goods to farmers down country lanes in the evenings. But he does like the quiet, and in the countryside, there was a silence that might be a bit harder to come by these days, and he could identify the type of bus approaching from quite a way away. Well, I was going back to where there was no sound, and when a tractor was in a field, it'd be the only sound, and you'd hear it not miles away, but over distance away, and you'd know where it was. And then various, only a few people had cars, and they all made different noises. And most notable was Yarrington's coaches. They brought the factory girls home, and they supplied a bus to the cinema on a Wednesday night and a Saturday. And they all were of different ages, different makes. Uh, they had about ten coaches, I suppose. And their gearboxes and back axles all made different noises. And as they came up from the valley, up the four hills, up to Menethwood, you would be able to hear them changing gear, and you'd know which bus it was. It was the Bedford or the Maudsley or the Thornacraft or the Leyland, and some of these buses had names. There was a Maudsley, quite a long bus, and it was divided into two with a set of doors, and these were like a railway carriage almost, made of wood and glass, and I would imagine they confined the smokers probably behind the doors at the back of the bus, and the kind of sane people sat in front, and, uh, that, was, uh, and that was known as the birdcage. But uh, quite a number of... Um, I remember the first Bedford Duple coming, 29 seats. Uh, there are still a lot of them about. They're used, often used for weddings now. And my first ride in it was to Blackpool. I was 16, and on the way back, it was the first radio I'd ever heard in a vehicle. And we had the news on, and it was the day that the two rivers and the flood was in Devon. The Linmouth and Linton floods which were devastating and that was on the radio on the way back from Blackpool and uh, then that coach went into regular service. Uh, they had another Bedford or oh, I suppose about 32 seats and that was built shortly after the war. The first bus we saw new after the war, and that had wooden seats, uh, slatted seats. I don't know as you'd want to go a long distance, maybe just to town. The coaches were used for longer journeys, uh, but also often in between they, they did uh, the factory run, etc. And they came from the valley, which took them more Worcester and Tembury way. 
and down the valley. We also had services later on from the Midland Red, but they went towards Stourport and Kidderminster. So, and they were more regular. They were our ones to go to school with. Also, market day on a Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> and often, at grammar school, we were the last to load. The bus came through, went to high school for the girls first, then down to the town for the shoppers, and then come pick the boys up. And nine times out of ten, the boys stood up for about three parts of the journey which was not very pleasant, especially on steamy, awful winter evenings. And you'd have people at the back of the bus. It wasn't uncommon to have the cheap of a, a box of chickens, cheap, 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 where some lady had been and bought a, a couple of dozen or, or more chickens in cardboard boxes to bring on, obviously to make ends out of and get some eggs. But uh, they were at the back of the bus and in all their shopping from the ironmonger, uh, rolls of wallpaper and all sorts. That was uh, later on, of course. Just after the war, you wouldn't have got wallpaper because there wasn't any. Tell me about the people who used to be collected who were picking up the fruit. Weren't there some farm workers and you had a box oh, at the back? yes, there were two farms. There was Erdiston Farming Company and they had... After the war, quite quite a newish Austin lorry, driven by a man called uh, Lewis Bird, and he would bring home the ladies who worked in the fields on the on the one side of the valley. On the other side was the Moore Farm, and they were another company that had several farms in the Team Valley, and they also had an extensive amount of hop fields, and also uh, very well known. Our valley was for soft fruits, cherries, apples, and the, the soft fruit bushes. And a lot of the produce went to the canning factory in Tembury Wells. So there, the Moore Farms lorry was a Fordson, uh, driven by a man called Johnny Postons. And he would stop and all these chatting ladies up on the lorry, and he would come round and put the steps up, and they'd get over the back. Uh, board down the steps and uh, Johnny would return down to the farm and a bit later on after the ladies had been home and uh, probably had a cup of tea they would turn up for their groceries at mum's shop so uh, we we used to get quite a lot of customers after the work day had ended and luckily we stayed open till seven o'clock at night so it gave them a chance to get our provisions in for the next day before we we shut up. There wasn't much happened in Menethwood. Uh, the day the road was tired, oh, that was big stuff. <laughs> uh, and they would start at one end. Menethwood was on a minor road between two more major ones. I suppose the road would be about four miles in all from one road to the other. The road in the valley... And then, and then another road, much further, much higher altitude. And they would bring the the outfit would be a road roller, and that would have a man who stayed with the roller all the time. So he had a wooden caravan hitched to it, and he well, just to check the fire overnight. So steam was up when the teams of road men came in the morning, and the loads of chippings and tar. 
And then behind that, he'd have a water bowser, so that he always had a supply of water, no matter where he was. What is a water bowser? Oh, it's a tank on two wheels uh, that carried his water supply, a big barrel, but specially made to, uh, to be tough, of course, for many years of service. And what did you have before tarmac? Oh, oh no, that area, Worcester, being fairly close to the Clee Hills with very hard granite, we had good roads, but they obviously needed surfacing now and again. And so uh, they'd turn up, the team would turn up, the man who sprayed the tar. So was it a steamroller? Oh, yes, steamroller in those days, yes. Um, they had a lot of them on Clee Hill. They had a, a company called Clee Hill Stone and Rolling Company, and they blasted the, the stone out of the top of Clee Hill. And, um, in fact, while I lived at Menith Wood, our view to the west over Clee Hill changed in that uh, Clee Hill changed its shape. But it's where the sun used to go down each day in summer, behind Clee Hills. And so we noted that uh, gradually you were blowing it to bits. Mm. But there was lots of granite, and so the roads up there had good surface. First of all, they'd sweep the road nice and clean, manually, of course, and then spray it with tar. This again was a brush attached to a hose from a tank which had a heater underneath it, and so the tar came out onto the brush. It would be brushed all over the road, and then the chipping lorry would slowly go backwards, and as it went, the chippings were running out of the back, and uh, this then levelled, brushed again, raked, nice and level surface, and then the man with the steamroller, then he did his job, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, until it was satisfactory. But we had all sorts of people come to our little shop to deliver, and these days, uh, supermarkets obviously have their own made-up orders, etc., but we had about three tea firms came. There was Gibson and Pettigrew, Lyons, Brookbonds, and probably more. Lyons Cakes in the early days came by rail. So they came from the local railway station. I think that would have been Newnham Bridge our delivery was from. And materials were so short. The boxes the cakes came in were stapled together. And we had a tool to take the staples out. We folded up the boxes, put a piece of string round, and when the man came from the railway, we got a new box of cakes and sent the other box back to Lyons to be repacked. It just shows how short of materials we really were. Other people, we had about uh, two wholesalers. Uh, there was a company called T.K. Goodwin from Worcester. Also from Worcester came uh, Morrison King. Uh, they both delivered, and so they had um, representatives would come one week, take the orders from my mum, what she wanted, and then the, the van would come a few days later and supply us with what we, what we had ordered. Uh, there were others. We had a, a paraffin lorry come with a tank on it and filled up our tanks, and we measured out a gallon at a time. Even that was on ration. Uh, war was on, and soon after the war, we would... Uh, measure it carefully into the people's cans, which they brought themselves, of course. Corona, later on, Corona came. We sold a lot of pop, 
especially when the hot pickers were out, of course, in that month. And then we started delivery rounds, of course, and that increased our, our sales. Not a nice thing for a boy growing up in a grocery store who has to spend his evenings and Saturdays delivering groceries on a round. It, no, no, not fun, especially in bad weather. Oh, our bread was delivered from Kidderminster by Collins and Son. What sort of bread? bread what sort of bread? Mostly white. They did good donuts and buns and cakes on a Saturday. And uh, What sort of cakes? Oh, I think they're called f fairy cakes nowadays, little cupcakes. We had trays of those, custards, uh, egg custards. Did you have things like Eccles cakes or lardy cakes? No, no, they didn't import anything from uh, f <laughs> foreigners up north. <laughs> no, I can't remember that anyway. No, no. We even had Draper and Haberdasher came from, I think, from Leicester. And then mum would order uh, reels of cotton and all sorts. We sold a lot, birthday cards, um, and we also sold postage stamps <laughs> because it was, a, it was the village post office. Postal orders. I just enjoy stamping the letters in the evening before the man came to collect them from Tembury in a little Morris van. There were jobs I didn't mind, others that weren't so good. Oh, we also had another company that came and that brought pig and hen food, but that came in great big sacks and we measured it out in larger quantities to customers around. Even during the war, sugar came in a Hessian sack, a 100 weight, 112 pounds, and we were supposed to get 112 pounds out of it, yet quite a bit of it had slipped through the material of the sack. Bit of a nightmare in a way to make ends meet for the village supplies. And, of course, they all wanted that little bit more. And, of course, no plastic. Oh, no, no. They brought their paper bags back if there wasn't a hole in them. So did you sell newspapers? No, not at that time, not at that shop, no. Tobacco? Oh, yes. What about sweets? Oh, yes, we, we had a couple of suppliers of sweets, yeah. A lot of them, of course, were in big bottles and we had to weigh them out, you know. Someone would come in the shop and they'd say, they'd say oh, good evening, what can I help you? Oh, a, a quarter of sup, please. And uh, you'd weigh out uh, four ounces of whatever they asked for, you know. Boiled sweets were a favourite, so were toffees. But they would. there were times when there was a limited supply. Uh, soon after the war, of course, we were all issued with coupons and if they hadn't got the coupons they didn't get the sweets and those sweets would be probably part of the ration of sugar or or um, syrup so uh, it was a balancing act and your sugar was tate and lyle i would think so mostly probably but um, no there's also british sugar corporation i so I imagine as much as possible during the war of course would have had to be produced from sugar beet because of the dangers of shipping uh, foods to Britain. So we grew as much as we could at home. And of course, Norfolk was a great place for, for growing sugar beet. And so that's where a great deal of the sugar come from, I would think. But then you didn't need a great deal because people only got a few ounces apiece each week. Agricultural and factory workers and miners they all got a larger ration because then they could 
supplied the muscle for uh, manual work. So they had a bigger, were allowed bigger meals. These were supplemented often from the countryside. The landlord of the local pub, his wife ran the pub during the daytime and he went off and uh, a couple of dogs, ferrets, bucks and uh, nets and he would uh, put the ferret down a hole where there were lots of rabbits in those days. Out come the rabbits, he hit them with a stick and the next day they would be in Birmingham or Midlands markets. My father, Brian Evans, talking about his childhood there. He was born in 1937. So when you next have a chat with your family, just stick on the recorder at the same time. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>